Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Uh, hey, here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to talk to you out of John chapter 17. So if you have a Bible or if you have a phone that has the Bible on it, you probably do. Just go ahead and flip open to John chapter 17. This is, this is that moment. Uh, this is that moment before Jesus is crucified. This is that moment when, when Jesus is praying. And one of the unique things about this moment is that the Bible has lots of moments where it tells us that Jesus prays. The Bible has lots of moments where it tells us that like, like Jesus would go off by himself and pray. But usually, usually the moments in the Bible that say that are, they're, kind of, they're kind of like just a narrative footnote. You know, they tell us that Jesus prays, but they never tell us what Jesus prays. You know, it's kind of weird. But here in John chapter 17, we get a really long section where we actually see what Jesus prays. And so what I want to do this morning is we'll begin just by reading the verses that are up this morning, which are John chapter 17, 6 through 19. Uh, we'll just, we'll start here. And I want you to realize these are the things. It's like insight into who Jesus is. Like, what does it sound like when Jesus prays? Or right before Jesus is crucified, what's most present in his heart and what's most present in his prayer, right? So we get a little bit of insight there. This is what Jesus prays. He says, I have revealed to you, meaning like the father, I have revealed to you the ones you gave me from this world they were always yours, meaning like his disciples. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message that you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you and you have given them to me so they bring me glory. Now I'm departing from this world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be just as united as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to this world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. That's our scripture this morning. There's a lot of things we can pull out of there, but here's, here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about 
this little part of Jesus's prayer where he, where he prays that the disciples would be united as he and the Father are united. This is a little theme in this John chapter 17 prayer. He says to the Father in prayer, he says, Father, would you make them, the disciples, those you've given me, would you make them united as you and I are united? He goes on in John chapter 17, verse 20. He goes on and he says it, he says it again. He says, Father, would you, would you make not just the ones you've given me, but the ones who will believe later, meaning like us, right? He says, he says would, you give me, uh, would you make it so that the ones, not just that you've given me here, but would you make it so that the ones that you've given me later, would you make it so that they're united just as you and I are united? So two times in this prayer, Jesus prays, that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about that because unity is a powerful thing. Uh, how many of you have ever been in a moment where there was just like great unity or agreement? Ever been in that? It, there's, just, there's power in agreement, isn't there? And I'm not even talking necessarily about charismatic power. I'm just talking about like sociological power of agreement. Like when humans, when we all kind of go, you know what? I think this and everyone else in the room is like, yes, this, that it's a tremendous thing. And, and, and we've experienced that maybe a little bit in our life. I hope you have. Um, and, and here's the other part when it comes to this kind of like deep agreement or, or unity or, or oneness. Uh, how many of you have ever noticed, not only is it powerful, but how many of you noticed that it's oftentimes rare, right? Like it's, it's not the most common thing because human beings see things from different perspectives, don't we? And, and how many of you have ever noticed this? That sometimes when it, when it seems like things are in agreement, how many of you know that oftentimes there's actually not agreement? Like maybe everyone in the room goes, yes. But how many of you know that there may be some people in the room who are in their hearts going, no. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, that's actually a really, that's a really important thing. Sometimes the moments where we think there's unity, uh, we might just think there's unity because because maybe the dissenting voices are too afraid to say, oh, I don't, I don't agree, or, or I see something different, you know? Uh, when, we're, when, we're doing, when we're doing staff stuff here at the Vineyard, one of the things that we're learning to do is something called mining for conflict. Anybody ever heard mi about mining for conflict? This is actually really, really important because you can, you can come up with a decision. Maybe it's something trivial like, hey, we should do church at the park on May 30th, right? Does everybody think so? And everybody in the staff meeting goes, yeah, good, good idea. And then, and then if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're wise at all, one of the things you'll do at that, spot, at that point, because the, because the agreement came too quick, you'll go, hey, hey, does anybody here think this is a bad idea? And then everybody goes, no, it's a great idea. Hey, is everybody here cool with the amount of work that it's going to take? Do you see this? What am I doing? I'm mining for conflict, right? Why? Because sometimes even though unity is a really powerful thing and even though agreement's a really powerful thing, sometimes when we think we have it, we really don't. And sometimes people, for whatever reason, just don't feel the oomph to say, hey, I see something different here, right? That's not to take away from unity. We're wanting to build toward true unity, aren't we? That's what we're wanting to do. Yeah, real unity is a powerful thing. Um, maybe maybe slightly, slightly more silly here for a moment. Um, how many of you have ever seen Tom Brady, uh, Tom Brady uh, run the quarterback sneak? Anybody here? 
He's like one of the best all time at that. You know, you think of Tom Brady throwing touchdown passes, but one of the things he's really good at is they run the quarterback sneak. And how many of you know that in order to run the quarterback sneak and to, and to, and to get the last six inches, the thing you need is everyone on the line and everyone on the team to what? Agree, right? To work together. Oof. You know, it's a powerful thing. How many of you have ever had some kids and you come home and they're not fighting? And you're like, you're like, what is, what is happening right now? It's like, like you, you have an, like a, like an older kid, like just pours a glass of juice for the youngers and Hey, here you go. And there's like nothing. It's like, wow, what is happening in our home right now? You know, like agreement and unity is a really, really powerful thing. Uh, Not only that, but there's all kinds of moments in the Bible where unity and being of one accord shows up. Uh, actually, it's all over the book of Acts. If you, read, if you read the book of Acts, I think there's 15 times in the book of Acts where Luke talks about people being of one mind or one accord. This is a, re- which is to say like book of Acts, like early church. What's one of the things that was a really big like engine of the, lo- of the local and, and early church? They were of one mind and one accord. The first time that the early church was of one mind and, and one accord is when they were praying before the Holy Spirit came. Luke says they're in the upper room, all together, of one mind, of one accord. Boom, Holy Spirit comes. But this is not just a New Testament thing either. In the Old Testament, a few weeks ago, I think we read Psalm 133 here at the church in worship. Do you guys remember that? And Psalm 133 says, how good and perfect it is when what? Brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil from Aaron's beard running all the way down to the edge of his garments. You think, well, that's really weird. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It, I don't know if I want Aaron's beard oil on me, <laughs> honestly. You do. It's moisturizing. No, but, but at the end of that psalm, it says, at the end of that psalm, it says, that this is the place where the Lord pronounces his blessing life forevermore. Where's the place that the Lord pronounces his blessing? Well, it's the place where the brothers dwell together in unity. That's the place. Like this is not just an Old Testament thing, but it's a New Testament thing. And then one of the very cool areas in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 15. I don't know if you guys remember this, but in Acts chapter 15, there's, it's a moment of controversy. You think, you think modern days is, is the season of controversy? No, controversy has always been in the early church. And so in Acts chapter 15, there's, controversy. And here's basically the problem. Uh, The faith starts out being like a Jewish faith with Jewish Jesus doing Jewish stuff. And then all of a sudden the Gentiles come in, right? And everybody's like, wait, what? Those guys, those dogs get to come in here? And, And the Gentiles, they don't keep the rules. They don't keep any of the Jewish rules. They don't even know the Jewish rules. They don't even like the Jewish rules. You know, it's like you just didn't grow up with it. And all of a sudden you have these people running around saying the name of Jesus, but they're eating food sacrificed to idols. And they're doing, you know, they're just doing all this Gentile stuff. And there's all these, there's just controversy, right? And, and Paul, he's kind of like in the middle of it. And not only that, but Paul's like the most Jewish Jew of all the Jews. And, and they have to have a council, which is like a giant meeting. And at the end of the meeting, at the end of the meeting, Luke says they were of one accord 
And they decided to send Paul and Barnabas on their way. So they basically, they settled all the Jewish and Gentile stuff. And they said, you know what? We're of one mind about one thing. That Paul, you need to go to the Gentile. You just got to go do your thing. It's a beautiful moment. If you get a chance, you should read it this week. Because it's a moment of controversy where somehow the early church did some some deep, like mining for conflict. They get to the bottom of it. And they see what the, the Lord is actually doing. And they send Paul to go on and do the thing that he was actually called to do. Unity is a powerful thing. But that's not the only thing that's powerful. And what I want to do before I dig into the scriptures specifically this morning, I also want to talk to you about this, and maybe you haven't heard this at church. Not only is unity a powerful thing, but disunity is a powerful thing. Disunity is a really wonderful tool if you want to use it. How many of you know that we've lived in unprecedented moments For the last four or five years, unprecedented times of disunity. Have you felt it? Has it it corroded your soul? (laughs) Yeah. Have Have you looked for ways to like limit the disunity in the world? Um, here's one of the things about disunity and one of the reasons it's so powerful. Um right now, one of the real shortcuts to relevance is not working for unity, it's actually working towards disunity. So let me just tell you a a life hack in reverse. If you don't care about your own soul, if the only thing that matters is growing a platform, the best way to grow a platform in the modern moment that we live in is to sow in any direction you can towards disunity. You will accumulate power the more you become a, 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 a lightning rod for factious tribalism and disunity thoughts and actions. It's, it's one of the ways to actually accumulate power right now. Um, there's a sense in which uh, the internet runs on controversy. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, like if, you, if you want to create a social media brand if you'd like to have a big platform and if you'd like to do it rather quickly, don't work for agreement and peace. Don't look for the ways in which lots of people are uh, agreeing or saying the same thing. And don't look for ways to build like ties of strength between people. But if you want to have a big internet platform, be controversial, be stark, be harsh, come out against someone, you know? This is, I mean, this is literally how it works. And by the way, this is not just for non-Christians or pagans. This is for Christians as well. If you want a really big, like, Christian platform, just come out against some other Christians. (laughs) And get people to fight about it. And then you'll create teams. And then there'll be the team that's you, and then there'll be the other team, right? And, And even if you lose the other team, it doesn't matter. There'll be people who resonate with your factious message. There's a sense in which that's the way it works. Be controversial, be brash, start fights. Uh, Here's the other thing about the internet. You can say anything you want on the internet. I think you all already know this. I just want to point this out. You can say anything you, you want on the internet and it doesn't have to be true. Truth is not, truth is completely optional, right? And here's why. Because with the infinite connectivity of the internet, Someone else out of there on the internet is interested and will get behind whatever it is that you have to say, even if it's a lie. 
And this is why lots and lots of Christians believe contra- like conspiracy theories that are completely untrue, you know? They think that Bill Gates is going to give them like, like a microchip in their vaccine. That's completely untrue. But someone will believe it. Like you could think of something crazier. You could, you could come up and think, you know what I'm about? I'm about, I'm about killing all kittens and putting their blood on my face. And you think, well, no one will resonate with that. I promise you, put it on the internet. There'll be thousands of people who think that's the good plan. Let's do it, right? It doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be anything. But because the internet is infinitely connected, there is someone else out there who thinks that whatever it is that you think is a good thing and you can build a team. Now, if you can take that and be controversial, if you can be brash, and if you can come out against someone else, guess what you have? A big team. Just be anti. This strategy works because somewhere deep inside of our human wiring is the need to be a part of a team. How many of you know that every single person alive wants to be accepted, wants to be included, and wants to be on a team? Like I, like, and you might be thinking, not me, I'm, a, I'm an individual. <laughs> it's like, no, yes, you're an individual, but yeah, you wanna be a part of a team. Everybody wants to be a part of a team. Uh, that need is working in all of us all the time. We need a team. Uh, Not only that, but everybody's looking for a team. And you might be thinking, well, I haven't looked for a team this week. Yes, you were actually looking for a team all week long. And for months and years, for every moment that you've ever been alive, you've been wanting to be a part of a team and you've you've been looking for a team at all times. And whether it's on purpose or not, the modern world has leveraged the power of disunity and it's created tribes, it's created teams. Uh, here in the last four years, people have lost relationships over political party affiliation. Like that's, that's actually happened. People have stopped going to Christmas and to Thanksgiving because of Dems and GOP. You think not me, I'm telling you, ask around, you'll know people. Hopefully that hasn't happened to you. Uh, people have been divided from their families because someone got, just got like completely out of whack by conspiracy. Uh, just last week, I was listening to a podcast about hate groups. Anybody ever, anybody ever listened to a podcast about hate groups? <laughs> Welcome to my world. Eventually, you work through all the podcasts, and you, you finally get down to like, you finally get down to hate groups. But I was listening to this podcast about like, why and how people become a part of white power hate groups. And you're like, why would anyone ever want to be a Nazi? Like, why would anybody ever want to be a skinhead? You know, like, like even like, no matter what, what you think about the world, why would, why would any reasonable person want to be a part of that? Right. And here's what the sociologist who studied hate groups said at the end, she was like, look, there's lots of reasons why people become a part of hate groups. You know, maybe they had some bad experience with uh, another kind of person early in their life, or, or, or maybe they just grew up in a home of violence. But she said the thing that undergirds nearly all of the participation in violent hate groups, but especially white power groups, is young boys who didn't have a family, who were lost and alone, and they just wanted to be a part of a team. Those were her exact words. They just wanted to be a part of a team, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, no, look, there's lots of other things that are involved in being a part of a hate group. 
none of it good. And that's an oversimplification. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that just wanting to be a part of a team could lead you onto a team that maybe violates all of your, all of your like internal wiring and thinking, you know, at the beginning. And then you just want to be a part of a team. Uh, there's power in unity, but church, make no mistake, there's power in disunity as well. Uh, I mean, like, here's the thing. Jake Paul is orchestrating this to perfection. You guys know the YouTuber turned fighter, Jake Paul? Yeah. What is that guy doing? He's just being a jerk. He's just being, he's literally just being a jerk on the internet all the time. Why? Because he's growing his platform. He knows the way, the way to get to the top. Air quotes here for those listening on the podcast. The way to get to the top is just be a jerk. Be controversial. Yes. Um, Here's the reason disunity is alluring. Disunity is alluring because it produces early returns. Like real unity, harder. Later returns. Disunity, easier. Early returns. I don't have to deal with anything. Like I can just come against things. Uh, I can push away what's hard or challenging about another person or situation, and there'll often be a positive reward for, for, uh, for working that way. Uh, there'll be the status of a new team. Or, or here's the other thing, too, and this is something we all like, human beings. All human beings like simple answers to complex problems, you know? And that's one of the ways you can build a team, you know? Maybe there's some big, really complicated thing happening in the world, And what we'd like is a simple answer to it. But the truth is, there's almost never a simple answer to complicated problems. Uh, Complicated problems have complicated answers. And, you know, when you hear people talk about simple answers to complicated problems, it means they don't know what they're talking about. And it also means they're, they're leveraging the power of disunity to create a team that's, that's working on our human switch uh, that really wants something simple. But, But the truth is complicated problems complicated solutions or perhaps or or perhaps uh, it's just it's the ability to keep myself at a distance from people or worldviews that might be challenging to my own this is one of the reasons people work towards disunity like I, I don't want my worldview challenged you know so I'll just go the other direction we're all subject to preferring teams not just now even in the bible Remember the disciples? Hey, Jesus, uh, who gets to sit on your left and right? Like, this is not new. This is old, right? Who, who gets to sit on your left and right? Or what about when the disciples said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans? <laughs> By the way, you understand they weren't joking. A, I mean, this, is, this little passage is hilarious on like 47 levels. Like, one, they weren't joking. Two, they thought they could do it. Like they had seen enough miracle power in Jesus. They're like, dude, we could smoke the Samaritans today. Let's barbecue them. We've never liked them anyway. You know, let's just do it. You know, Jesus, give us, give us some of your miracle power and let's smoke the Samaritans. Yeah, like in the, even in the Bible. And then uh, maybe, maybe you've read 1 Corinthians lately. One of those churches that, Paul planted. Paul opens up his letter back to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul is sort of addressing some of the controversies in the church. And Paul is bringing back up some of the things that people in the church have said to him. And do you guys remember this passage? Oh, oh, 
uh, I follow Paul, right? Remember this? And then other people would say what? I follow Apollos. And then, and then some other people would say, no, 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 I follow Peter. And then you got the super Christians. And what do they say? I follow Christ. It's like Trump, Trump. Like, how are you going to play that card on me right now? You know, you can't play the Trump Jesus card on me right now. How are you going to do that? What are you talking about? Even this week, even this week, my newsfeed has been filled up with people, many Christians, picking teams as the deadly bombing in Israel and Gaza takes lives. Everybody's picking teams, right? Yeah. And by the way, almost none of the Christians who are picking teams in the deadly bombing between Israel and the Palestinians this week, uh, here's what I've noticed about all the people who are picking teams. None of them have degrees in Middle Eastern geopolitics. In fact, none of them have even been there. (laughs) None of them actually know any Jews or Palestinians, but they've picked teams, right? Why? Because we just want to pick teams. And I guess here's my my question this morning. Uh, In a world like this, where we pick teams, where from Bible times to now, we want to pick teams. In a world with the internet, where any opinion will be validated by someone. In a world right, right now where truth, uh, what is truth, right? Like, how do you know what's true? Where you can say untrue things and people will agree. In a world like this, where Christians who've never been to the Middle East will choose teams between Israel and Palestine based upon scriptures that they probably don't understand. In a world like this, when is Jesus's prayer that we'd be one like he and the Father are gonna be one? When is that prayer gonna be answered? I mean, you would expect if anybody's prayer is going to get answered, it's Jesus's prayer, right? That's the thing I've been thinking about this week. Like if anybody's prayer is going to get answered, like maybe before your prayer or my prayer gets answered, we'd think Jesus's prayer is going to get answered, right? Like when, when, you know, that's a thought. The discomforting thought does come with a bit of comfort though. It's this, if Jesus's prayers take a while to come to fullness, then maybe you and I haven't been forsaken while we wait either. Anybody have a prayer or two they've been praying and it's not quite come to fullness? Well, hey, listen, Jesus has a prayer or two that hasn't been fully borne out yet either. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to share three thoughts on unity from John chapter 17. First thought, a bigger team. Rather than dividing the world into smaller teams... Rather than finding our strength in a smaller world, let's follow Jesus and make room for a bigger team. And here's how Jesus did that. Jesus did that by invitation. Jesus, if you read the the Gospels, have you ever noticed that Jesus is always inviting? He's like, hey, would you follow me? Hey, would you follow me? Hey, would you follow me? Hey, if anybody would like to follow me, let him what? Take up his cross, right? Deny himself and what? Follow me. Like Jesus is always making invitations. Like how could we, how could we lean into Jesus's prayer? Uh, we could lean into a listening to Jesus's invitation for ourselves first, like actually become followers of Jesus who do the things that Jesus says. But then what if we just adopted Jesus's wider approach and rather than dividing the world into smaller teams, what if we just became inviters? And I mean inviters in all sorts of ways. What if you invited people to your house? What if you invited people to lunch? 
And what if you invited people to follow Jesus? And what if you invited people to know the things that you know? And what if you invited people? And what if you invited people? And what if you invited people? And what if we didn't really like kick people out, but we just invited people? This is what we see in Jesus. He's an inviter. Uh, Here's the thing. If we're going to be inviters, uh, we could do this. Assume that God's kingdom has room and flexibility and a way to include anyone. What if God's kingdom is actually flexible? What if it has borders and boundaries, but they're like, you know, those trash bags you can put your hand in? Why do they do that? Like, why is that the selling? Why is that the marketing? Look, you can flex it. But what if God's kingdom, what if God's kingdom, you could just, you could put stuff in it and it just would, it would just expand. Uh, Here's the other thing about invitations. Invitations are never forced or or coerced. Uh, Jesus didn't make people follow. Jesus didn't look at people and go, you better follow me or I'm going to barbecue you in the end. You hear me? You hear me? Burn in hell forever. You better. You better today. You better. If you don't follow me, my father will throw pianos out of heaven on you. He will. And when it hits you, I'll laugh. Like, you better follow me. You better. Hey, if you don't follow me, who knows? Hey, who knows what will happen to you? Hey, guys, I'm God's son. And if you don't do what I say, I mean, who knows? Maybe plagues. I, I don't know. I could do anything, you know? Jesus didn't make people follow. Uh, the other thing you, you see in the Gospels is Jesus doesn't make people obey. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Jesus never makes anyone do anything. Jesus never forces or coerces. Uh, how many of you know that you can force somebody to do something But if you force someone to do something, it will never lead to love. You can force compliance. You can force obedience. But forced obedience will never lead to love. That's why Jesus is an inviter. The bigger team, the bigger team of God's kingdom isn't the team that's making people do things. It's the team that's inviting the most. Uh, Now, here's the other thing I want you to hear. Uh, Being a team of inviters, it doesn't mean that there's not a cost. You know, some of you are hearing this and going, Adam, this sounds just too squishy. You know, Uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus warned people, you know, and yes, Jesus did warn people. Uh, It's true. But Jesus was an inviter. He didn't force people to do anything. He didn't make people obey. Uh, And all of this is true. And at the same time, it doesn't mean that there isn't a cost. When Peter and John followed Jesus, they left their note, they left their nets, and they left their family. Like cost. They gave up their jobs and their family to follow Jesus. It cost something to follow him. When Jesus called Matthew, he got up and left his tax table. He left his career. He left a lucrative career on the table to follow a man who didn't tell them where they were going. Jesus is like, follow me. Matthew's like, where are we going? Jesus is like, don't know. <laughs> it's like, what? There's always cost. There's plenty of a cost, but invitation's at the root. Uh, it also doesn't mean this. Invitation doesn't mean that we don't have to change. You know, uh, if you follow Jesus, if we become inviters into the Jesus way of life, it doesn't mean I get to stay the same. Paul, Paul had to give up being a persecutor, right? 
Jesus comes to Paul on that road to Damascus and invites him onto his team. And, and in so doing, Paul has to give up being mad at Christians and trying to kill him. Like, it doesn't mean there isn't a cost, and it doesn't mean that we don't change. Um, there's an amazing story right in the middle of the book of Acts. I've been reading Acts again. There's an amazing story in the book of Acts. In Ephesus, Paul goes and preaches there, and apparently Ephesus is just filled with the occult, and it's filled with sorcery, and everybody's like a magician. Do you guys remember this story? And the gospel takes such a profound root in Ephesus that they start a bonfire and they throw all of their sorcery books into the bonfire. And Luke says those books were worth millions of dollars. Like there is a cost and it doesn't mean we don't get to, we get to stay the same. It means we will change. It means we will pay a price. But, but the unity that Jesus has with the father is one that's based on invitation it's not based on coercion. It's based on freedom. But man, let's be inviters. Number two, being one as Jesus and the Father are one. I've hinted at this already. Uh, it, it means being rooted in love. The unity that Jesus prays for is rooted in love. Uh, we know this because of how Jesus prays. He says, Father, make them united just as we are. In verse 20, he says, just as you and I are one. And, and you might want to ask this question. Well, how are Jesus and the Father one? Well, it's a mystery, but we know that they're one by love. That's, that's how they're one. They're one by love. They're rooted in love. And even, even when you read the prayer of Jesus closely in John chapter 17, I hope you hear the familial language that Jesus keeps interjecting into the prayer. He keeps calling God what? His father, right? Like this is how you know it's rooted in love. And here's the thing that I know about fathers, and I know this because I am fathers. I am a father. Fathers love their children. What does it mean to have the unity of Jesus? It means, it means, it means we love. It means our lives are rooted in love. Fathers love their sons and they love their daughters. Kingdom, kingdom unity is love and not just normal love. It's like unconditional, never ending love. That's one of the markers of familial love when it's right. You know, I, I've told you guys this before. I'll tell you again. Uh, I have four kids. I think they're pretty good. Early returns are solid. Who knows? I mean, in the end, who knows? You don't know about people. You do the best you can, you know, you don't know. But the early returns on my kids are, they're good. If later, one of them becomes an axe murderer and ends up on death row, guess how much my heart will change toward that kid? Zero. If my kid became an axe murderer, I would love that kid forever. Like nothing my kids can do will ever change the way I feel about them. Now we might have moments, we may have disagreements. That's human, right? But there's nothing that any of my kids could ever do or become that would make me not love them. That's, that's, the, that's what it means to be rooted in love. Uh, when your child is born and you hold them for the first time, you love that kid. Now here's what's weird about it. You have this kid uh, they're, they're two minutes old or two minutes outside of the womb. We'll put it that way, right? And you hold that kid, they're still greasy with whatever it is. 
that little white stuff, you wipe it off. Yeah. So many thoughts right now. I'll never, I'll tell you, I'll never get over that. Like whatever that is. But you hold that little, you hold that little guy two minutes in your arms and you instantly love that kid. Now what's weird about it is you don't know that kid and they don't know you, but you love that kid. Isn't it, isn't it weird? Can that be confirmed by other parents in the room? You're like, who is this little guy? I have no idea. I literally have no idea. And my heart is bursting. I will do anything for this kid. That's kingdom love. Unconditional, like, I don't even get it. We don't even, it's like, it's beyond understanding, right? It's like, what is this thing? That is it. It isn't based on performance either, right? Like what little kid has done anything for his parents at two minutes old? What little kid can do anything for their parents at two minutes old? No, the parents are going to serve that kid for years. You know, it's not, it's not that the kid can do anything for you. It's just that by their mere existence, something grows in your own heart. Yes, that is it. It's not based on anything. Of course, of course, loving others this way is a journey. And we fail a lot. And, and the truth is, maybe we mostly fail, you know? I want to be the kind of person who has unconditional love in my heart for not just people who are on my team, but I want to do the Jesus thing and learn how to have unconditional love for people who are not on, the, on my team, you know? That's actually the Jesus thing. Uh, I mostly fail at that. I'm fairly, inf- I'm, I'm fairly flammable as a person. <laughs> thermostat sits on the hotter side of things but that's the goal and and here's the other thing that loving like Jesus or being rooted in love means Uh, loving like Jesus like Jesus loves the father and like the father loves Jesus loving like Jesus is rooted in being loved like Jesus like Jesus could love because he was loved Jesus could love because he knew that he was loved That's actually very, very important. And the good news for everybody in this house this morning is that the Father loves you with an everlasting love. God loves every single person in this room this morning and everybody who's coming to second service with an everlasting love. Uh, God loves you in your weakness, uh, even in your most broken places. Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that God has for his people. Number three being united as Jesus is with the Father. It means sharing what Jesus shares. In two places in this passage, in verse 8 and in verse 13, Jesus talks about sharing what he had with his disciples. Jesus says in verse 8, he says, I've passed everything along to them. Did you all hear that earlier? He's like, everything that you gave me, Father, what did I do with it? I gave it to the disciples. I passed it on right? And then in verse 13, he says, I've shared everything with them so that their joy could be made complete so they could have my joy. That's what he says, right? In verse 13, uh, there's something about sharing that brings unity, sharing, but then also receiving. Here's a question I have. Uh, What if we lived as though we both had something to give the world? What if we lived as though we had something to give the world? Every person here, But then number two, what if we also lived as though everyone was my teacher? What if I could hold those together? I have a gift to give the world, 
and everyone is my teacher. What if, what if everyone is my teacher extends to people who are on our team and people who are not on our team? What if I could just live like I have something to give, but then I have something to receive? Here's the other question I'd love to ask this morning. What have you received from Jesus? Jesus says, man, Father, make them one as you and I are one. I've given them everything you gave me. Uh, what have you received from Jesus? Can you be specific? Have you spent any time thinking about that? Because that's the thing you need to pass along. That actually grows the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. Uh, tell that story. Whatever it is you've received from Jesus, tell it over and over and over. Lead a home group about what it is that you received from Jesus. Like take four weeks and just tell the story of the things that you've received to Jesus to seven or eight other people. It will change your life and theirs. Like you don't even have to put extra gas on it. You could tell the story in the most boring way possible and it will change someone's life in the room. Tell the story over and over again. Um, here's just a few things that I've received from Jesus. Uh, I've received forgiveness. I've received forgiveness for all my sin. And here's what I would also like to say about that. I'm an above average sinner. <laughs> it's easy to overlook this. It's easy to overlook this, especially after you've been in church for a while. It's easy to overlook the fact that God has forgiven you. Uh, it's easy to just be like, well, yeah, God forgives. That's his job. And it's my, it's my job to do the sinning, you know? It's his job to do. <laughs> or, it's, or it's easy to think, or it's easy to think that sin's not that big of a deal. You know, there's, there's also this, this thread that sin is not a big deal. This keeps growing right now. This is something that's been growing. It's always there, but man, it's growing a lot lately. It's like this, that one's got a lot of sunlight and a lot of rain, it seems like lately. But, but in order to think that sin's not a big deal, we'd have to know the consequences of all of our actions. And how many of you know that you don't know all of the consequences to all of your actions and attitudes, right? Uh, because, because, because all of our sin is essentially relational. Uh, maybe, maybe you think your sin is private. Maybe, and maybe you have a private sin right now that basically no one knows about, and you think it's private. And here's what I'd like to tell you. It's not. <laughs> it's never private. It's always it's like it leaks and it's relational, you know? It's always, oh, it's just bigger. But here's the thing, Jesus forgives. And one of the things that I have received from Jesus is forgiveness. Not for some of my stuff, but for all of my stuff. Every bit of it, every single bit of it. I've received that mercy from the one person who can hold my soul to account. I have received mercy, mercy, mercy. Uh, second thing that I've received from Jesus, I'm just trying to be specific here for a minute, a purpose, uh, specifically calling and vocation. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, 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 you're a pastor. No, no, no. Yes, of course I'm a pastor. And yes, of course, I received that call from Jesus. But I, I just want you to know, everybody has a call from Jesus and you don't have to be a pastor. In fact, if you can do anything else, do not become a pastor. <laughs> Like if you can do any, do not work for a church. If you can do anything else, don't do it. Like make sure it's him. Let him tell you at least three times, you know, he will, he will, he'll bug you about it. But, but every, I've received purpose and call, I'm being funny, but, but the call to be a pastor, it's a great call. 
It's hard, but it's a great call. And, and Jesus wants to do that for everybody. Jesus, he's not just inviting you on the team to sit the bench. You know, Jesus has a place for every single person. He wants to, he wants to call all kinds of people. And you don't have to live your life like swimming around going, what am I doing with my life? Like, listen to the Lord. Like, he wants to give every single person a place. Uh, Third thing I've received from Jesus is friends. I've received so many friends. I have so many companions for the journey and, and they're not because I was like gregarious and went out and found them. Uh, I have friends because I, I met them on the, I met them following Jesus. Like if you start following Jesus, you'll meet other people who follow Jesus. You'll find friends. Like I have friends here. And by the way, a lot of pastors don't have friends at the church they pastor. I have, I have friends at the church I pastor, like real friends. And I don't have to, I don't have to act like a, I can act like I can just be myself and people will be like, yeah, I like that, you know, and I don't have to like turn the pastor switch on and off. I don't, we've gotten through that. That's a hard, another thing. But I also have friends who are not here. I have pastor friends in the vineyard from all over the world. I have friends who are not even pastors. <laughs> I have mountain bike friends. I have gym friends. I've got church friends. I got pastor friends. I've got wine friends. I got wine friends that we rarely ever see each other, but we just Instagram stuff to each other and talk. And then sometimes when I'm in their city, maybe because I went and do a vineyard thing, I'll go to drink wine with them. Check this out. This is, this is a gift from the Lord. I have a wine friend in Houston that I see maybe every 18 months. We rarely hang out. Our only connection is we drank wine together one night. And if I'm in Houston, I can text this guy and I will go to his house and he will open up the most beautiful things. And we have this amazing thing. And how many of you know, like, that's, that's the Lord. To have a friend is like, what? Yes. These are the things that I've received. Friends for every moment. Actual friends. What a gift. Um, And here's the fourth thing I've received from Jesus. Challenge. Jesus, man, he's he's a loving and he's a merciful Jesus, but he's also tough Jesus. I've received challenge. Uh, Things like loving, loving your enemies. See, that's the actual Jesus love. That's how you know you've done the Jesus thing. Not that you just like love, not that you love your kids. You know what? At the end of the day, you'll get, you'll get almost no credit for loving your kids. Cause like, cause if you don't love your, if you don't love your kids, you're whacked. Okay. You need to go to therapy. But, but the Jesus love is to love people who don't love you. Jesus love is to love people who got it out for you, you know, or to want the best for them. And man, Jesus has been challenging me on that. Um, see, here's, here's what Jesus' love means, especially when it comes to loving enemies. Um, it means that all the Republicans are going to have to learn to love the Democrats. Ain't that fun? That's specifically what it means. I love putting it that way. I love putting it that way. 
because it's just abstract until you realize. No, here's what Jesus means. He would, he would come to a church that's probably mostly filled with Republicans, and he would go, yeah, you can't, even be my, you can't even be my disciple unless you learn how to love the Democrats. And of course, the Democrats have to learn to love the Republicans, right? Like, of course, of course. But if we're in rural Kentucky, Jesus' word to us is probably... <laughs> That all the Republicans are going to have to learn to love the Democrats all the way down. Jesus just keeps bringing up challenge. This is one of the things that Jesus has done in my life. Jesus has given me friends. He's given me, he's given me a call. He's given me a place on the team. He's forgiven all my sins. But then he keeps coming to me and he keeps challenging me. You know? What's the point? Oh, here's what I would like to say, church, just to wrap this up. We got to follow Jesus. That's how we cooperate with the prayer of Jesus. That's how we cooperate with this call to be one as he and the Father are one. We got we to follow Jesus. Let's do what he says. Uh, here, here's the other thing about that. If he's, if he's saving us and if, if Jesus is saving them, whoever they are, then why could I condemn them, Right? Like if you've got, if, if Jesus is saving you and he's saving some other people out there in the world, we don't get to write people off. Amen. All right, y'all. If you're on the worship team this morning, come on up. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.